Today's episode is brought to you by Howl.fm. Howl is a brand new app and website that is changing the way people think about podcasts. Imagine Netflix, but for podcasts. They're a subscription service featuring dozens of original miniseries, audio documentaries, and comedy albums, premium access for your iOS and Android phone, plus the web is only $4.99 a month, but you can try one month for free by signing up through the web and using the promo code LEFT. So go to Howl.fm and use the promo code LEFT for a one-month free trial of Howl Premium. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Democracy Now!, the Tom Hartman Program, Economic Update with Richard Wolf, The Young Turks, and Activism from Public Citizen and Exposed the TPP. Say you discover that your cell phone company has been taking money from you for roaming charges for calls you made from your home, or that your employer has been denying you payment for extra work you're required to do, or your mother's nursing home gives her too much medication and she dies. What power do you as an individual have compared to a big corporation except to take them to court? But then what if it turns out you can't? Why? Because you signed away your right to a jury trial in the fine print contract you had to agree to to get that cell phone service, that job, that nursing home care. This is the alarming reality exposed in a recent New York Times series reported by Jessica Silver Greenberg, Michael Corkery, and Robert Gabeloff. Here to bring us more on the issue and what we can do about it is Joanne Dorishow, founder and executive director of the Center for Justice and Democracy and co-founder of Americans for Insurance Reform. She's also adjunct professor at New York Law School. Welcome back to Counterspin, Joanne Dorishow. Great to be here. Well, there are some distinctions to be made here. There's a difference between having arbitration as an option and forced arbitration, for one, and then what the Times is talking about is the increased use of contracts that both push consumers and employees to arbitration to settle disputes and ban them from participation in class action lawsuits. For those who haven't seen the Times' series, and I think we'd both recommend it, what's going on here? It seems deeply significant. Yes, it is, and it's fairly recent. It's really the result of two major Supreme Court decisions, one in 2011 and one in 2013, that upheld companies' use of what we call forced arbitration clauses and class action bans. In other words, what we're seeing now with the support of the U.S. Supreme Court are companies inserting in fine print of technically contracts, but they're the kinds of things, for example, if you're purchasing something on the Internet, you just will hit agree, and you don't really read those long contracts that are there. You know, they're there, but nobody really reads them. And one of the clauses in these contracts now says, basically, if you have a dispute with the company, you no longer have your constitutional right to civil jury trial. You must resolve that dispute in a corporate designed arbitration system run by an arbitrator who may or may not even be a lawyer, who doesn't have to follow any rules of law. It's secret. There's basically no appeal. You're basically subject to the biases and the manipulations of the arbitrator and the company who hired that arbitrator. And as you also mentioned, 
the U.S. Supreme Court also upheld a part of the forced arbitration clause which bans class actions. That means if you've been, let's say, cheated by your bank, and it's a relatively small amount of money, you're never going to be able to sue that bank in court. The only possible way you have of recovering the money you've been cheated out of is to join with others in a class action lawsuit. And it's the only way to get the company to really stop this behavior. Well, if I can bring you back to that 2013 Supreme Court ruling, Scalia actually said, antitrust laws do not guarantee an affordable procedural path to the vindication of every claim. That seems monumental, but as I understand it, it really wasn't made much of at the time. The court looked at, strangely enough, a 1925 law called the Federal Arbitration Act, which was passed at the time just to facilitate arbitration between businesses, it was never intended by Congress to be expanded to affect consumers and their disputes with big institutions. But the Supreme Court said, nonetheless, this 1925 law takes precedent over every other state and federal law on the books, and even though there should be a right to go to court to remedy discrimination, to remedy fraud and abuse. The court said, we don't care if a company wants to force you to arbitrate, that's okay. People think that when you talk about corporations getting together and making a decision to remove legal rights from consumers and employees, that sounds like conspiracy theory, but in a sense, that's really what happened. Yeah, I mean, what we found out from this New York Times series is that in 1999, a bunch of big companies got together in a room and decided how they were going to start strategizing to make sure that they could start doing this to consumers, that they could start inserting these clauses and banning class actions and that the U.S. Supreme Court would uphold it. It was really startling to find out that the current Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, when he was a corporate defense lawyer, was part of all of that. He was representing Discover, the credit card company at the time. And so now we're stuck with these decisions. It seems important, again, to underscore that class action lawsuits, while they might be about the $30 overcharge that one person got, they, they really also are the only way in, in some way that you can expose wrongdoing on a big scale. I mean, some of these cases are about Taco Bell, for example, the charge that they, at least one outlet, was denying black people promotions. You know, it might, the class action lawsuit isn't just about the particular legal remedies for individuals. They really are about exposing wrongdoing on a larger scale. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most famous class actions in history was Brown versus Board of Education. It is a very important tool for anyone who has been discriminated against or who wants to try to hold uh, big institutions to account for any kind of wrongdoing. Well, the pushback to the Time series is already underway. Forbes had a piece saying, Aha, the Times doesn't tell you who the lawyer was for one of the businesses involved in a case against American Express. He's a lawyer known for fighting credit card companies. That's the real face of consumer class action. These aren't lawsuits by little guys trying to vindicate their rights. They're lawsuits by wealthy attorneys trying to get wealthier. Yeah, well, that's the only thing they have to say is try to blame lawyers 
But there's nothing that I've seen so far in any of the critiques coming from business of these New York Times articles that suggests in any way that there is anything inaccurate about anything they said. What these businesses try to do is make it seem as if consumers are not benefiting from these class actions. But what we also know is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in March, after a long empirical study, they found... In just like the last year, tens of millions of people benefiting to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And the Time series actually cites not, it's not just lawyers, they also have law enforcement and judges saying, you know, we've lost a, a critical tool here. Hopefully this Time series is shining a light on something, but what can we do about it and what is being done about it? There is a bill in Congress called the Arbitration Fairness Act. It is being spearheaded and pushed very hard right now in the Senate by Senator Franken, Senator Leahy, and there's a companion bill in the House by Congressman Johnson. People should let their members of Congress and senators know that they support the Arbitration Fairness Act. The other important thing to remember is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is about to issue a rule. While they wouldn't ban forced arbitration clauses, they would prohibit companies from putting class action bans in these arbitration clauses. So this is a very important development, and this agency needs a lot of support also from the public because there's enormous pushback coming from big business on this proposed rule. And hopefully other reporters will not just think, well, the Times did it and it's done, but report out the story and its various adumbrations. Absolutely, because these are horror stories that are happening everywhere in the country. So any local reporter can easily find them in their local area. So I do hope that people continue to pay attention to it. This mess was yours. Now your mess is mine. Walking around at 8 a.m. Got two hours before my flight. Luck be on my side tonight. One of the biggest and most secretive trade deals in history has finally been revealed in full. And critics say it's even worse than they thought. On Thursday, the complete text of the controversial Trans-Pacific Partnership was released after years of closely guarded talks. The TPP was agreed to last month between the United States and 11 other Pacific Rim nations. The group represents 40% of the world's economy. It will set common standards in areas including employment, food safety, the Internet, corporate governance, and intellectual property. It also establishes new tribunals under which corporations can sue governments for laws that affect their profits. The legal mechanism is called the Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. Activists around the world have opposed the TPP, warning it will benefit corporations at the expense of public health, the environment, free speech, and labor rights. With the fine print now disclosed, the TPP's opponents say their worst fears have been confirmed. 
In a statement, Public Citizen said, quote, the text shows that the TPP would offshore more American jobs, lower our wages, flood us with unsafe imported food and expose our laws to attack in foreign tribunals. On Thursday, the White House notified Congress it intends to ratify the TPP, starting a 90-day review period before President Obama can seek final approval. The Senate has granted Obama the authority to fast-track the TPP and present it to Congress for a yes-or-no vote with no amendments allowed. Lawmakers will face heavy lobbying from wealthy TPP backers, but grassroots opposition could play a role, too. In one sign that public opinion could be influencing the political class, Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton came out against the TPP last month. It was a major reversal for Clinton, who helped push the TPP during her time as Secretary of State. Clinton's rival candidate, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, has long opposed the TPP. For more, we're joined by Lori Wallach, director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, leading TPP critic. Welcome to Democracy Now! So the TPP is out. What's in the fine print? Lori, what surprised you most? What are you most concerned about? Well, it was worse than we expected, and we knew quite a bit based on leaks and on admissions from negotiators, mainly from other countries, There are a couple of places where I was shocked to see that actually the TPP actually rolls back what was extremely modest progress that congressional Democrats had forced on President Bush for his last set of agreements. Three specific things. One, in the area of access to affordable medicines, the TPP's rules on patents, actually both for developing countries but also for us, would roll back that initial reform and make medicine more expensive in pretty dramatic ways. Number two, the investor state dispute resolution system is actually expanded out in ways we should discuss so that more kinds of laws can be attacked and many more companies would be able to attack U.S. laws. And then the third thing that was kind of a shocker is there is an expansion of the kind of attacks you can have on food safety, on imported food safety, which is really serious because Malaysia and Vietnam, two of the TPP countries, are amongst the major importers of seafood and shrimp. A lot of their stuff gets stopped now for being unsafe, but this agreement would give them new rights to basically attack our stopping their stuff for food safety purposes and flood us with unsafe imports. And, and Laurie, on that food safety issue, what's the potential effect on the United States, which obviously has a a long-term and pretty well-developed food safety system? Well, I think it's very telling that yesterday the agribusiness industry was the only major industry that was extremely enthusiastic when the text came out. And they said, wow, we got these great ways to stop these food safety attacks on our imports. Well, they're thinking of trying to jam our GMO foods into other countries. But what's good for the goose is good for the gander, which means the same rules could mean that imports, particularly of, I don't know how to put this because people are probably having breakfast, but in Vietnam particularly, there's a huge issue of farmed shrimp being farmed in pools that, among other things, are fertilized with human poop. Can't put it another way. And then lots of antibiotics are poured into the ponds before the harvest to deal with the diseases that come from the human waste. So we've got some really unsafe products. Right now, we only inspect a small percentage, but we over-inspect for countries like Vietnam because we know they're big problems. One of the new rules I was surprised to see is you can challenge the inspection, both 
the way you sample, how you decide to pick at a particular country because they have problems, but also you have limits on how you can do testing, how long you can hold the product. I mean, practically, what does it mean? The TPP could mean poisonous food that you can't label from what country it comes from on your kids' plates. It could mean major public health issues. Whitehouse.gov has as a, a list of people and organizations who support the TPP. One example is the World Wildlife Fund, which is quoted as um, saying, no major trade agreement before this one has gone so far to address growing pressures on natural resources like overexploited fish, wildlife, and forests. Another supporter is the National Small Business Association, which is quoted as saying the TPP appears to be a positive step for small firms, particularly the inclusion of a chapter dedicated solely to small and medium-sized enterprises. And the Council on Foreign Relations is quoted as saying the TPP deal has the potential to reshape an important part of the U.S. economy, strengthen in American diplomacy and launch a new generation of international economic cooperation. What say you, Laurie Wallach? <laughs> well, World Wildlife Fund is out there pretty much by themselves with a couple of other conservation groups. The big news yesterday was that NRDC, one of the country's biggest environmental groups and a, an environmental group that supported NAFTA, came out against TPP, joining the Sierra Club, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, etc., etc. There are some conservation groups that look at animal issues who aren't as familiar with trade agreements, who the White House is persuaded that this one provision about shark finning or this provision that says let's be nice to animals in the TPP is good for their agenda. The problem is all of those kinds of policies that a country might adopt can then be attacked under the investor state system. And this is an agreement that for advocates like 350.org who are fighting climate change, as is Sierra Club and the others, is catastrophic in that it would require us, it would basically reverse our current policies that allow us to stop the export of natural gas, liquid natural gas, so that we would basically be exporting a lot of carbon-based fuels against a sustainable, non-carbon future economy, and we would lose a lot of the energy and other policy tools we need to combat the climate crisis. So if you're working just in a particular species, you may think you may have been sold, this is a great deal, and you don't know the net effect. The vast majority of environmental groups are leading the campaign against the TPP because, just as an example, one of the other shocking things in the agreement is George Bush's trade agreements, they were bad, they had the agreements enforcing seven specific multilateral environmental agreements so that actually those were the environmental standards that were to be enforced by all of the countries. They had to adopt and maintain and enforce those standards and their laws. Here is this new agreement, and it wipes out six of the seven agreements. There's only one agreement that's enforceable anymore, so there are no standards in the environmental standards part of the standards in the chapter on environment. Uh, so Lord with these groups... On the foreign policy front, this is, you know, sort of the expected, the Council on Foreign Relations is a cheerleader for all of these agreements. They're going to make this argument that somehow this will help our, this will help us contain China. It's sort of a strange argument. It's unclear what the good strategy for that is. That's the usual argument you hear when actually the, the argument about jobs fails. The bottom line with TPP, which we knew before, is it will make it easier to offshore American jobs and it will push down our wages by putting Americans into competition, 
with folks in Vietnam who make less than 65 cents an hour. We knew that before. Now we know all this additional bad stuff. Uh, Laurie, I wanted to ask you, some groups came out against the agreement that you don't usually associate with trade deals, like Doctors Without Borders and Human Rights Watch. Could you talk about their concerns? Yes. So Doctors Without Borders, which um, basically, as everyone knows, is a major humanitarian group, is extremely concerned about what would happen with medicine prices. And this gets to the language I'd mentioned where I was shocked to see rollbacks of previous reforms that the Bush administration had made. So Big Pharma got a lot of goodies in this agreement. In a free trade agreement, we see new monopoly protections for Big Pharma. And so Doctors Without Borders is basically pointing out that in a whole smorgasbord of policies where Big Pharma was trying to use the TPP, the good name of free trade, to put into place a bunch of new protections and privileges to raise medicine prices, they got their way. And the two biggest ones are which is shocking rollbacks from the old U.S. trade standard, which was bad, is all the developing countries in TPP, including countries that are really poor like Vietnam, ultimately have to have the same extreme patent standards, extreme exclusivities that will just price people out of medicines. I mean, it will <clears throat> translate to people dying. Laurie, let's go to the MSF, the Doctors Without Borders video. This is a part of it. The TPP is slated to become the most harmful trade agreement ever for access to medicines. The TPP could impose new rules that will extend monopoly protection for medicines, keeping prices sky high for longer and blocking generic drugs from entering the market. For example, one rule would allow patents to be extended beyond 20 years. This means that patients will have to wait longer for access to affordable medicines. And this wait is potentially indefinite because another TPP rule would allow new 20-year patents to be granted for modifications of existing drugs, for a new dosage, for new formulations, even when there is no real improvement in efficacy for patients. So people must wait longer for affordable generic medicines to become available. The TPP would also require surgical methods to be patentable. For example, how a doctor operates on a patient. That's what Doctors Without Borders said. This is U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman on the impact of the TPP on research and access to life-saving drugs. On biologics, as you know, this is one of the most challenging uh, issues in the negotiation. We've worked cooperatively with all of our TPP parties, partners to secure a strong and balanced outcome that both incentivizes the development of these new life-saving drugs while ensuring access to these pioneering medicines and their availability. And this is the first trade agreement in history to ensure a minimum uh, a period of protection for biologics and in doing so will help set a regional model and will create an environment in which uh, through comparable treatment, there will be an effective period of protection to encourage both innovation and access. That's the U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman. Lori Wallach, your comment on both clips? Well, now we've seen the text. The American public can look at it, and Doctors Without Borders is right. And the U.S. Trade Representative is trying to defend an indefensible industry position that the administration has put into this agreement. I mean, the bottom line is most of the countries involved have no exclusivity for those kinds of cutting-edge drugs, which are a lot of the cutting-edge cancer cures, biologics. And now they will have five years at a minimum. The industry says they got eight years. There'll be enormous pressure to have more monopolies. And just think about the theory of this, a free trade agreement 
that stops competition. It stops the competition of generics that bring down prices. That is actually what's in the text, whatever the U.S. officials are saying. We can read it now. Well, Laurie, where do we go from here? Obviously, there will soon be a 90-day period of, uh, for Congress to vote on, fast, on, on the fast-tracking uh, fast of this bill. The protests are already being uh, called for in Washington, D.C. And the president, who's whose presidency was largely crippled by the Republicans in Congress for the past uh, seven years, will now depend on the Republican majority to get the votes necessary to pass this. So yesterday, the president gave official notice of intent to enter the agreement. That starts the first 90-day clock. So ostensibly, by the first week of February, the TPP could be signed. Then the next question, though, and the most important thing for all of us to think about is it only becomes reality if Congress approves it. Now, we are behind the eight ball because we've got fast track, so no amendments, etc. However, by five votes only did fast track pass. That means if five members of Congress, looking at that text and knowing it's not what they were promised, that it would offshore more American jobs, it would push down our wages, it would flood us with unsafe food and raise medicine prices, if we have five members in the House of Representatives who say, Oh, no, that is not what I signed up for. That's the end of TPP. So our mission, basically, is knowing there will be a huge push for a vote early in the spring and that this very day the White House has fanned out across the country with cabinet secretaries. They're up on the Hill trying to break arms, get members of Congress to say, oh, I'll be for this thing. We need to do the same thing on behalf of the public, on behalf of the jobs, wages, environment, food safety that our families rely on. And we can get our members of Congress, we only need to move five, to vote no, that's the end of the TPP. And we can do this, and we have brothers and sisters in the other TPP countries who are doing the same thing. Together, our goose is not cooked. We can still make sure the TPP bad future is not ours but we're going to have to talk to our members of Congress, and we need to start now. And next week is a congressional recess. So members of Congress will be back in the district, look on their websites. They frequently have open houses. You can just go. They work for you. And if there isn't an open house, you call and make an appointment. It is really simple. Go to tradewatch.org. has all the materials, information from way into the weeds analysis. There is an analysis team that has put together by chapter by chapter yesterday the bullets you need to know on each of these details, but also how to do a congressional meeting. Grab a couple of your friends and your family. Go tell your member of Congress you need that commitment. We can stop this. Laurie Wallach, I want to thank you for being with us. Director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, author of The Rise and Fall of Fast Track Trade Authority. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you 
you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. The TPP is designed to protect investors. Period. Only investors can sue. Labor cannot sue. The environment cannot sue. Consumers cannot sue. Only investors. That should tell you everything you need to know about the TPP. This is of, by, and for powerful, rich, large transnational corporations. They want to, for example, about uh, 70% of the seafood now consumed in the United States is imported. There are these huge fish farms in Vietnam and China where the fish live in, in, in polluted water that's very often polluted with human feces. They, they, pour, bacteria, they pour antibiotics into the water so that, so that the fish don't get sick. Uh, we get these, these fish. Uh, the, the most common one you'll see in the United States that's grown in these kind of ponds is tilapia. You walk into a restaurant in the United States and you see tilapia on the menu. Ask them where it came from, ninety uh, percent of the time or more. If the if the if your server knows anything about you know where it actually came from, it came from China or from South Vietnam or from Vietnam, excuse me. And we inspect about two percent of this as it comes into the United States. Under this TPP agreement, if you are the importing company. And the United States says, "Hey, wait a minute! This fish doesn't look good. We want to run some some samples. We're going to take this. Uh, we're going to swab it and take it to the lab and see if it's infected with bacteria." Under under a uh, a process. Sorry, I don't have the name for it, but uh, it, it, this just blew my mind. It, it is the the. Company importing the food can say that you are hindering our ability to examine these products, or you're, you're excuse me, you're hindering our ability to import these products. Let me see if I can find the. Uh, no, I can't. This, I mean, this just came out. I'm I'm dealing with uh, stuff that just you know basically fell on my desk, um, but. You know, they, they can say you're, 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 you're impeding our trade by inspecting food. And so we're challenging that inspection. Only investors can sue, not labor. There is no outside appeal. Once the, once the TPP tribunals have ruled, once the corporations have ruled, that's it. If the United States passes laws, that, say, protect our citizens from poisonous food coming in from Vietnam or China or badly manufactured drugs. We're now discovering that many of the drugs manufactured, many of the drugs, in fact, most of the drugs, most of the drugs sold in the United States are not made in the United States, first of all, vast majority. Most of them are manufactured either in China, India, or Europe. And I don't know if you saw the report last week, I think it was in the New York Times, that in China, many of the drugs, they, they started inspecting some of the drug factories and discovered that they were using out-of-date raw materials, they were using low-potency raw materials, they were using things that weren't even supposed to be in some of these drugs. Everything for the buck, right? 
And, you know, in third world countries, you can kind of buy off the regulators. The ability of the United States to assert its national security has been removed. I think I already mentioned that. These new limits on food safety rules. There is no ban, you know, there were many people who were saying, okay, if you're going to negotiate an international trade deal, here's one reason why you might want to have an international trade deal, to ban the trade in endangered species. All right, let's do that. Let's ban the trade in endangered species. I mean, there, that's actually a, a, a reasonable reason to have an international trade deal where everybody says, okay, we all agree we're not going to do this. It's not in the TPP. Instead, what it says is that uh, they will they will endeavor not to participate in that trade. Right. Similarly, uh, illegal fisheries. There are illegal fisheries all over the world, and they are stripping the oceans. And a lot of the products of those fisheries end up on tables in, in, in homes and restaurants in the United States and other countries. Are we stopping that with the TPP? No. Again, it says they, the, the, the member countries will endeavor not to undermine regional conservation fisheries. In other words, legal fisheries. Endeavor not to undermine them. This is completely toothless. Slave labor. Slave labor and forced labor. The language of the TPP says that the sale and trade of goods manufactured with forced labor or slave labor is, quote, discouraged. You really think anybody's going to pay attention to that? There, uh, uh, you know, one of the other areas where you think maybe we could all get together on this on international trade and, and like have some kind of consensus is climate change. Let's have a trade deal that regulates carbon. Because, you know, actually, as you increase trade, you increase shipping. As you increase shipping, you increase fossil fuel usage and you increase global warming. Increased trade right now means increased global warming. So shouldn't fossil fuels, shouldn't carbon, shouldn't climate change be part of this? No mention of it. The phrase climate change does not appear anywhere in the 2,000 pages of the TPP deal. This is insane. And everything that I said do, like make the world brand new, take the time for you. I just got lost and slept right through the door, and the world spins around. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP that the government of the United States, led by Mr. Obama, is pushing so hard through the Congress. Yes, it was a new deal between big corporations and the governments that have a frontage on the Pacific Ocean. That's why it's called the Pacific PTT, etc. TPP, excuse me. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. It's a deal between corporations and the governments they already buy and control. So it'll have nothing to do with you and me. It will not respect what we need or want. It will not find out what we need or want. It will not institutionalize what we need or want. This is a struggle between Corporation A 
located in one country, and Corporation B. Corporation A bends its politicians to go get the rules of international trade changed in its favor. The only way country A, like the United States, can do that is if they can do something with another country that allows an American corporation to have an advantage there, to sell cigarettes when it's bad for people's health, to dump drugs at high prices rather than obey the local laws, all kinds of issues here. But the way you get another country to do what the United States wants is you have to do something for the politicians there. They want you to do something that helps one of their corporations. So the American government, to please the American company, does what the other country wants and helps their corporation. But that, of course, hurts somebody here in the United States. So each government is trying to figure out who do they help at the expense of what other economic interests in their country will be hurt. That's what's going on. A vast poker game among governments and businesses helping and hurting each other, and the hurt businesses will fight it, and the benefited businesses will push it. Obama is lining up those who benefit to work with him. Ford Motor Company, for example, a company that doesn't like what's happening, will fight it. And each side, as they fight, will try to enlist us, the average citizens, to back them. You can do it. But believe me, what you'll end up with, whether it wins or loses, is an arrangement that is good for corporations, good for governments who pander to them, and will have nothing to do with either the ecological, environmental, economic, or any other interests of the average people. That's why we were excluded from knowing about, from news about, and from participation in it. I mean, what's very interesting is you have Bernie Sanders um, really stressing inequality. This pushes uh, Hillary Clinton to do this because he has gained so much momentum and drawn tens of thousands of people to his rally. On the Republican side, you have, in some areas, Donald Trump sounding more liberal than Hillary Clinton immediately came out against these trade deals. Yeah. So, so in a sense, what you see both in the Republican and Democratic Party party is a sense that something is wrong. You know, America was the first middle class society. We're about to become the first society that ceases to be a middle class society. The basic uh, requirements of being a, a member of the middle class, the ability to send your kids to school, uh, secure retirement, uh, all those things are being put in jeopardy. And, and one of the things we talk about in rewriting the rules is how we can get get those back. But what you're seeing on both sides is sense of anger. Now, I think that both of the Democratic candidates have put forward credible ways of dealing with it. It's going to be a long discussion. The problem is that on the Republican side, there's anger, but it's basically inchoate. You know, it's basically uh, tax reforms that actually 
rewrite the rules in the wrong way, uh, making things even uh, more unequal than we have, and the numbers not adding up. Um, in part one of our conversation, we talked about the TPP, the um, Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal that President Obama has really championed. What would, what grade as a college professor <laughs> would you give President Obama, who actually went to Columbia University where you're a professor, when it comes to these issues? You've called the trade deal a charade. Well, uh, unfortunately, you know, he's done some... Uh, Things that, you know, he did not support some of the basic reforms in the financial sector that I think were needed. TPP, I think, is, is, is a very big mistake. On it means other, corporations control trade as opposed to democratic societies it, and their it, governments? Exactly. And, and particularly, you know, as we move away from lowering tariffs, which is what the old trade deals, these are about regulations. And yes, regulations ha- maybe have to, some regulations have to be harmonized, they have to be changed. But you can't leave that up to corporations. And you, with a, a changing world, you can't lock in the current regulatory structure, which is what TPP uh, attempts to do so for people who don't understand tpp explain who makes the decisions around these global trade rules this will control what 40 percent of the global economy yeah and it, the irony is that the president came out and said this is about who makes the trade rules china or the united states but i think the big issue is this is about who makes the rules of trade, the American people are democratic process, or the corporations, and who they're made for, which is for the corporations or for all of us. You don't think President Obama understands that? No. You don't and think he understands it? or he- I, th- I, I think he wants to chalk up some kind of an achievement, i.e., he can't pass anything through... Congress because the Republicans won't allow him. So he has to get something that the Republicans want. And they want a trade agreement. This, uh, the, the provisions about, in the TPP about investment, about, uh, are, uh, the kinds of provisions that were number one in the agenda of the business roundtable. And so, and explain what the business roundtable is. Uh, this is the the group of the big, America's biggest corporation. It's not the mom and pop store. It's not the mom and pop store. So this is about big business being able to protect uh, themselves. But let me make it clear. Uh, it's not about property rights as we usually understand it. You know, with the, what the USTR says, the, you know, they say, well, we're dealing with countries where we can't trust the way the legal system works. So we have to put these protections in because these countries just can't be protected, uh, trusted. We are insisting on the same kind of provision in our trade agreements with Europe. Germany and the Germans are saying, you know, we have we have just as good uh, legal system as yours, and why are you trying to you know go beyond our legal system? I mean, for instance, there they care about GMO. You know, they they care a lot about uh, 
various kinds right, of genetically modified organisms. organisms and 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 they say you know we want to least the consumers be informed they can make a, a choice and if this gets passed if you pass the regulation that said you have to display and americans and and people say i'm not going to buy a product that's gmo they can be sued because if you put the label on just informing people that there may be GMOs in this product, you can be sued. You could be sued. Now, we don't know. Let me make it clear. We don't know all the provisions. <laughs> they kept it secret. But you have to say... And how did they get away with keeping it secret? Well, that is the, the amazing thing. You know, this was... The, their argument, again, is they have... You know, these are negotiations, very complex. Uh, and if you everything were open, everybody would be, you know, it would be a mess. But they haven't really kept it secret because they've talked to the corporations. The corporations have been there at the table saying, well, it's really important for us to have this provision. It's really important for us to have that provision. But ordinary citizens have not been at the table. You know, the only way that we know what's go- going on is leaked documents. And some of the leaks come from other countries where there's a stronger democratic commitment to, to more transparency. But our government has been keeping it much more secret. We're talking to Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist who's written the new book, Rewriting the Rules of the American Economy. What would rejuvenate worker power, labor power, union power in this country? Well, all these things are about rewriting the rules. I mean, our basic idea is that over the past 35 years, we've rewritten the rules in ways that have weakened labor power, increased the financial sector power. There's been a rebalancing of the power in the wrong way. What happened 35 years ago, Reagan? President Reagan, but he was part of the zeitgeist, because you see it in Europe going on at the same time. Uh, And let me just say, TPP is another example of rewriting the rules in the wrong way. It's the continuation of that trend that began back in around 1980 that has increased the imbalance and made things more difficult. So what we need to do now is to rewrite the rules once again. But this time, you know, we're in the 21st century. It's not going back exactly to where we were before 1980. It has to be modernized. But realize that we rewrote the rules that in ways that destroy the kind of balance of power that we have. So if you were in charge of writing a trans-Pacific partnership trade pact that helped people, the vast majority of people, what would be the rules of this TPP? One thing that we haven't talked about is one of the most controversial aspects is access to generic medicines. Mm. You know, ordinary people need to be able to get medicines at a low price. We struck a balance in the United States in the Hatch-Waxman Act where we said, okay, big pharma has to uh, be able to get some returns for their investments in research. But mostly research really goes on in the universities, let's be clear, and at NIH, government-sponsored research labs. Uh, but the generic medicines, which are now more than 80% of all drugs, bring the prices down. That's the competition that makes the market work. Well, we struck that balance, but in this trade agreement, 
They're trying to restrike that balance in favor of big pharma. And, you know, this is, we were talking about President Obama's legacy, one of his big legacies is Obamacare, and that's supposed to bring access to medicine. But when you, T- TPP will go in exactly the wrong way because it will restrict access to medicine for many countries around the world. So that's one thing. But take the investment agreement. I would do two things. First, it seems to me that the conditions under which you can sue uh, are wrong. Uh, If a country uh, passes a regulation, uh, whether it's for health, safety, the environment, or managing the economy, uh, you shouldn't be able to sue. These are called regulatory takings, and we've repeatedly, our courts have said, it's the basic right of a country to design rules to protect their citizens, protect their economy, protect their environment. So the conditions under which you consume are wrong. Who can bring a suit is wrong. Uh, it should be government to government, not a corporation suing uh, a government. And thirdly, the judicial process by which it's done. It shouldn't be in private courts. The most important, one of the most important public functions is dispute resolution. When we created the WTO, we created an international panel for dispute resolution. We could do the same thing for investment agreements, but instead they decided to go to very expensive private arbitration with rife with conflicts of interest, you know, so expensive that I referred earlier to the Uruguay, uh, uh, where Philip Morris is suing. Altria. Uh, Altria, you know, the successor to Philip Morris. Uh, it's so expensive that Uruguay can't pay for its own defense. And Mayor Bloomberg, who is so concerned about smoking, is paying, is contributing to the support of Uruguay to defend itself against uh, Altria. Uh, which is just passing regulations that try to protect people's health. This is my word, heartbreaker, gatekeeper. I'm feeling far away, I'm feeling right. Deep in my heart, deep in my mind. Take me away, take me away. This is my word, dream maker. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's action, opposing the Trans-Pacific Partnership on Climate Grounds. While the UN Climate Change Conference continues in Paris this week, we have the opportunity to do some intersectional activism. Trade, labor, climate, and health, all of these things are always connected. So let's use the spotlight on Paris to remind our legislators how true that is. The Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy put out their analysis of the TPP and have bullet 
pointed three ways it would hurt the climate. One, it expands the rights of corporations to challenge regulations. Two, it drives natural gas exports and production. And three, limiting support for local renewable energy systems. At public citizen's website, citizen.org, use the action link Stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where you can use your zip code to address the autofill letter to your legislators. The subject line will read, vote no on the TPP, but take a second and add for the climate to the end of that and include a personal comment in the body of the letter about why you're against this destructive trade deal. Don't forget to post about sending the letter on social media using the hashtag StopTPP as well as the one being used internationally for the Paris Climate Talks, hashtag COP21. You can find your legislators' handles and Facebook pages at contactingthecongress.org and as always, if you're feeling motivated, you can get their direct phone line there as well to leave a message saying you're a constituent who opposes the Trans-Pacific Partnership. For those who enjoy a good social media campaign, you can also visit ExposeTheTPP.org to add your palm pick to the collection with the reason you oppose the trade deal written across your hand and posed in the five-finger-out stop sign. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If preventing a trade deal that could devastate the climate matters to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about the effort to stop the TPP via social media so that others in your network can participate too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change CNN here with an excellent story about taxes Now, uh... I've been telling you all along that uh, the corporations have taken over uh, the body politic, and uh, they've done that by uh, having Supreme Court do decisions like Citizens United. Uh, now, I say having the Supreme Court do that because back in 1971, Lewis Powell wrote a memo on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce saying, hey, we should take over a lot of the institutions in this country, including the Supreme Court. And then Nixon thought that was such a good idea, he took that young man who took, uh, wrote that memo and put him on the Supreme Court and said, go ahead and take it over. And then Lewis Powell was critical in decisions like Buckley v. Vallejo and Bellotti, which said, yeah, yeah, money is speech. And corporations are human beings, so they can uh, speak with their money. And ever since, we've lost our democracy. Citizens United basically shot a dead horse. According to a Princeton study, uh, they studied 1,800 policy positions over 20 years. Public policy is not at all affected by public opinion. That means you don't live in a democracy. Donor opinion has complete effect. A direct correlation to public policy. Okay, so that means they're in charge. So now, when you look into the taxes in this country, you begin to see how that manifests itself and how you've been robbed. Okay, so that's where we go to the CNN story. First of all, are taxes too high? You know, Republicans are always saying, oh, taxes too high. Oh, my God, you twist my arm. Oh, God damn it, they're so high. No, that's actually not true. Uh, in 2015, federal taxes are on track to be about 18% of the economy. That's normal. That is historically... Very, very average. Okay, it is not too high. The question is, who's paying the taxes? And that leads us to this incredibly interesting chart. 
Uh, so, let's take a look at the two pie charts. One is in 1952, and the other is 2015. In 1952, you see that individuals pay about 42% of all the taxes. Uh, now, in 2015, they uh, pay 46.5% of taxes. So they pay a higher proportion. Well, that's interesting. But here's what's more interesting. Back then, in 1952, remember the good old days, according to conservatives in this country, corporations paid 32.1% of all taxes. Today, they only pay 10.8%. A massive redistribution of the tax burden, and hence, a redistribution of wealth. Corporations pay a lot less than they used to. Now, who did they shift that burden onto? Well, obviously, as you just saw, some to individuals. Now, the problem there is that some of those individuals are very rich, so they don't want to shift too much into that category. So what's the category that went up the highest? Social insurance and retirement. That used to be only 9.7% of the pie, only 10% uh, of the taxes that were paid overall in 1952. Today, it's at 33.5%. So that is where they got redistributed to. So, why? Well, you see, Social Security taxes are paid only by people making a certain amount and less. There's a cap on it. Once you get past the cap, and that's a little over $100,000, right? Well, then you don't have to pay the Social Security tax anymore. That's actually, in some ways, the most regressive tax we have, where the rich get to skate on anything extra. If you were, gonna, if you were rich and your plan was to shift the taxes onto the poor and the middle class, that is the tax that you would increase. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. And what would you decrease? Well, corporate taxes, which is obviously going to the very rich who are the executives and shareholders of those corporations. So uh, let me go back to CNN here. They explain businesses became smarter. Well, that's one way of putting it, about finding ways to legally lower their tax bills over the years. Companies that operate globally move their tax jurisdictions overseas to reduce how much they paid in U.S. taxes. Others have filed for S-corporation status, which allows them to pass income through to shareholders who pay taxes at a lower rate. See, this isn't just about being smart. It's not like this was in the tax code already, and they're like, oh, wait, oh, I got an idea. Why don't we do take the taxes through here, through our offshore subsidiary, and then that way we'll save taxes. No, no, no. They changed the rules. They bought the politicians. The first rule they changed was, let us buy the politicians. We'll call that money we're giving them, not a bribe as it used to be, it's my new speech. I'm just talking to them. I talk to them through millions of dollars that I gave them. And then I'll have them change the rules so they will reduce, for example, to two different ways. They'll reduce the amount of money that the IRS gets so they can't uh, come and regulate me. So they can't, if I'm cheating on my taxes or I'm using one too many loopholes or I'm being a little generous in how I interpret that loophole, well, they don't have the resources to track me down. The other way is just flat out change the rules, right? So that, for example, oil companies get $40 billion a year in subsidies. The politicians say that the most profitable companies in the world, in the history of the world, should get subsidies from the rest of us. <laughs> Insane. Now, in a democracy, you would never have that, but we don't have a democracy. The corporations took over our government, and what did they do? They reduced their tax burden, and they shifted it on to you. <laughs> that was pretty convenient, wasn't it? So now let's look at the second half of that equation about the Social Security tax. When it commenced, back in 1937, by the way, the Social Security tax was just a mere 2%. Now it's 12.4% for Social Security and 2.9% for Medicare. 
Now, look, if that was fair and it applied to all taxes and that 12.4% went beyond $200,000 and it went to millionaires and billionaires and it was 12.4% of all their income, well, then you might say, hey, look, it makes sure that people have something to retire on. Obviously, we're in favor of Social Security and Medicare and making sure those are funded. But it doesn't. That's the one tax that says leave the rich alone. And shockingly, it turns out that's the tax percentage that tripled. You see what they did? They robbed you in broad daylight. <laughs> you, the people in Washington say, oh, money in politics, campaign finance reform, that's just one issue. That's just a, a, a remote issue that's hard for people to understand. Is this easy to understand? You've been robbed. You've been had. You've been took. This is the great American robbery. They did it over the course of decades. And all those trillions of dollars in taxes, they stopped paying them, and they made you pay them. Is that clear enough? If you don't get an amendment to get money out of politics and end the bribery, end the corruption, and bring back free and fair elections, but we don't have a democracy, and they're going to keep on robbing you. They're doing it now. They're going to do it tomorrow unless you get up and fight back. Wolf-pack.com. You know what we're doing? We're bringing together a team of warriors who aren't going to stand for it. We're going to fight back. They're not coming for us anymore. You know what we're going to do? We're going to come for them. We're going to come for them politically, and we're going to get that amendment. Every generation of Americans has gotten an amendment except us. It's time to change that. Get up and ride. You're going to let them keep robbing you? I'm not. Wolf-Pack.com. Volunteer, become a member, do whatever you have to do. Well, let's go get the sons of bitches. You just heard clips featuring Counterspin regarding forced arbitration, Democracy Now!, interviewing Lori Wallach of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, and then later interviewing Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz, both about the travesty of the TPP. Tom Hartman and Richard Wolf from Economic Update both chimed in with their comments about how the deal is a giveaway to big corporations and investors. The activism for today was from Public Citizen at citizen.org and Expose the TPP, and the Young Turks finishes off with a breakdown of how corporations and the rich have systematically shifted the tax burden onto the poor and middle class. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Elka in Fort Wayne, and I'm responding to um, a message that was left by Matt, um, I think in Pennsylvania. Hey, Jay, this is Matt in Pennsylvania. Who brought my name up in terms of, of me apparently having called Wade a racist. You played Wade, Wade's call and then uh, followed with Elka who accused him of being racist. My mouth fell open when I heard that. At, at no point have I ever called Wade or anybody else on the show or who was calling him the show a racist. That did not at any point, if he had really listened closely to what I said, at no point would he have ever heard me call Wade a racist. That's point number one for Matt. And second, you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me that when a person of color is critical in any way, shape, or form of someone white or of something that someone white has said, 
like all white people can hear is that they're being called a racist or that some other white person is being called a racist. I cannot even tell you, you can probably hear it in my voice, but I cannot tell you how annoying and just irritating and, and just what a complete turnoff, you know, to, to any desire, uh, you know, or um, any willingness that I and many other people of color have to have deep, in-depth conversations with white folks about race because this is always where it goes. Somebody hears you wrong, literally hears you wrong. He literally, this person, Matt, literally heard me wrong. I did not say that. At no point did I say that. Anyway, <laughs> that's it, Jay. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey, uh, Jay, it's Ruben from San Jose calling. I wanted to weigh in on Wade's comments about police in schools and the, you know, the follow-up. Right off the bat, it's funny, and I, by funny I mean indicative of the, the issue at hand, that Wade would, out of the air, pick World Star Hip Hop as an example of why it is necessary to have police officers in school. One of the reasons, I'm sure, is that, you know, the very video of the police officer flipping that girl in her, you know, chair, you know, it, was, it probably went viral on that site. And, I, and, um, and more importantly, World Star Hip Hop exists as a racist dog whistle in our society. Whether or not Wade is conscious of, you know, that fact, People use World Star Hip Hop the same way they would use the term ghetto or ratchet hood to basically underpin an essentially racist argument about the, um, about the lacking civility of black people, you know, on a cultural level. And, you know, I don't think that was Wade's intent necessarily to tap into that, but that doesn't change anything about the facts, you know? It's like, there are people who will use terms like ghetto and ratchet, maybe in an appropriate context, but because because of racial dynamics, it creates a general air of racism. Like, the, that's, the, that's the whole issue of, like, dog whistle politics. Whether or not you're aware of your dog whistle racist views and perspectives, you are ultimately accountable for looking out into the world and recognizing based on data and other people's experiences that certain issues are significant beyond your own experiences as like a white person. Yeah, so love the show, Jay. Have a good one. Hey Jay, it's Paul Fontaine from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Last time I called was about two or three years ago. Uh, about the SL pipeline and its threat. Obviously, we already knew about it. Yay, sort of stopped, maybe not. But um, I plan on calling in a bit more. So for the audience, I'm a progressive conservative. That basically means that I am a Liberal Party of Canada member uh, in Canada, which is a center-right party. Uh, ignore the name. <laughs> uh, basically pro-weed, pro-business, uh, but also pro-safety nets and healthcare and pharmacare and all that fun stuff so that uh, people don't become awful uh, and hate their lives. So on to my main point, 
Uh, the $15 minimum wage number. I've never really understood it. It's said here in Canada. It's said in America. But we have different currencies. So I never really understood why it's $15 in both countries. I'm wondering if it has a reason that it is 15 in the States that I just haven't figured out or looked at. I've looked it up. I can't seem to find any good documentation that's why. Maybe you or one of your audience can explain to me. And maybe then I'll just find out that the $15 thin uh, by hyper left people that I hear in Canada is a little overblown. Uh, just for like context, it's about $11 right now in Canada. And uh, tips aren't as used, but uh, our waitresses and waiters do get the minimum wage. They don't get some weird $2 minimum wage and they have to make it in tips. Never really understood how that works. Uh, but yeah, so that's my message. Have fun. Thanks for the shows. I think I've been listening since about uh, the healthcare debates in 08 now, which is amazing. I've been listening for eight years uh, on and off. Thanks, Jay. Uh, I'll be calling more often. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Kobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply leave a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to uh, quickly and inexpertly respond to uh, the last message we heard regarding minimum wages in the U.S. and Canada, I I didn't do any research for this. I don't have any economic expertise to explain why, even though we have different currencies, both movements would be pushing for $15 an hour in both the United States and Canada. That said, I have an answer, and I can essentially promise that this is correct. People like round numbers, and $15 an hour feels right. It feels like a good stretch to head towards, but it doesn't feel like too much. And asking for $14 or $16 just doesn't have the same ring. And so campaign-wise, uh, marketing-wise, messaging-wise, uh, $15, it just feels right. And so I, I just looked up the conversion rates. Turns out for Canadians to push for a $15 an hour minimum wage is equivalent to the United States pushing for just over $11 an hour. So that's not nearly as much. And conversely, if the United States were to get $15 an hour, that's the equivalent of $20 an hour Canadian. So yeah, they're not equivalent and it's not fair, but to make it fair, Canada would have to push for a $20 an hour minimum wage and that would, I think, severely hamper their ability to actually achieve that goal. So unfortunately, I think it really is just that simple. It has essentially nothing to do with economics and everything to do with marketing and just the fact that people enjoy even numbers. Speaking of even numbers, uh, I'm trying to get a nice round 100 new members to sign up for the show. And there's a reason for that, because if I had asked for 85 new members or 113 new members, that would have sounded weird. But I'm trying to get 100 because people like round numbers. So I have a couple, a couple of weeks before the holidays and about 45 members to go. I would love to get those slots filled up. If you want to support the show and you've been thinking about it, uh, now is the time. I simply don't do big membership pushes very often. I don't like doing it. No one likes doing it. And so as I said when I began, 
I'd, I'd been looking at sort of a chart of my members, how they've been going over the last six months, maybe the last whole year. And I, I was like, oh, that's that's not staying even anymore. That's starting to drop off a little bit. So it was a time to spring into action. As I have also said, I don't need a giant pile of money to run the show. I just need a nice, steady flow of members or donors. And, uh, you know, advertisements just don't fill that gap. Uh, sometimes I can get access to ads and that helps a little bit. And then sometimes I can't. And so uh, what I really need is just a rock solid set of members who are going to support the show through thick and thin. And so that's what I'm looking to do right now. And of course, you get more than a warm and fuzzy feeling for supporting the show. You get access to a bunch of bonus content, including the full archives of the show, a bunch of other interesting uh, old radio pieces that I've compiled and, and you know and enjoy. I make those available for members, and then I do bonus content on a somewhat regular basis, doing sort of behind the scenes stuff or just you know talking about whatever I've been reading about or thinking about or whatever. And so that comes out for a, a as a members only bonus podcast. So memberships start at six bucks a month. If you want to give more than that, that's awesome. If you can't even do that and you want to give less, uh, that is totally acceptable as well. I'm not going to sit here and do episodes about how the you know the poor and the middle class are getting screwed, and then expect that everyone's going to be able to chip in. I totally get it. I'm just asking that if you can chip in that you consider chipping in. Uh, and then finally today, I just want to mention that uh, the song I've been using after the activism segments for a while now, it's called This Fickle World by Theo Bard. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. And, uh, you know, I, I get emails from people on a fairly regular basis saying, how do I get that song? Because I have it listed in the show notes and then people go search for it and they can't find it. And so then I get emailed or people actually track down Theo and ask him, hey, I heard this song of yours, but I can't find it to buy. Where can I get it? And so it turns out that enough people got in touch with Theo and bothered him about the fact that they couldn't get this song that they really wanted, that he actually made it available for sale. If you're wondering how I came to have this song when it's not available for sale, I actually met Theo at the climate change summit in Copenhagen five years ago. He was there to support the effort and played a live show. So I heard him play live. I looked up his music. I went up and chatted with him, you know, after the show and available at that time was, uh, that song, this fickle world, as well as, you know, a few other of his tracks on, I think, MySpace. And I was able to download it from MySpace and I've had it ever since. But he just never got around to actually making it available for sale or making it part of one of his albums. And so I've had it and loved it for all this time. And when I started using it on the show, people also, I think, really liked it, want to get their hands on it. And good news, now you can. So you can either just search good old Google for Theo Bard and This Fickle World and it'll come up, or there's a link in the show notes when you just see his song. Click that link, it'll take you right to the page where you can buy it. It's available for one pound because he's British and they still weigh their money over there or something. And I know that he would love uh, to have you purchase it and I know many of you would like to own it. So it's a win-win all around.
Now that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who have already supported the show through the years by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Can you take a patch of wasteland and blonde roses so, so sweet? Can you take a crying baby and rock him to his sleep? Can you feed a hungry child, give a stranger your smile, or when seeing someone ride? Make their anger meek and mild Well then you could make a difference In this fickle world of change Can you fell a giant oak tree Or plant one from a seed Can you cut into living flesh Could you stop a wound or bleed Cure an illness when it's rife Marry husband into wife Or with certain sharpened knife Could you save a person's life? Well then you could make a difference In this fickle world of change Have you ever lost your road Wandering aimless here and there? Have you ever been alone? Has a stranger taken care? Have you been so far from home When like water from a stone Foreign friendship starts to grow And all your loneliness flow Then you know what makes a difference In this fickle world of change Can you keep your conscience clean without hands as black as coal? Can you focus on your task, trying to realize your goal? If you make all your demands as you stand on sinking sands and nobody understands as they cast you to the dam, then you try to make a difference in this fickle world of change.